0: Thanks for listening to the latest Google Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome along to Football Digest Extra Time with myself, Ned Keaton. I'm joined today by Tom Victor of the Daily Mirror to go through uh, what's been another busy few days in football. Of course, we've got the uh, just finished the international window for England. The transfer window is well and truly back open now as well. Chelsea already making moves just before we came live to record today. Um, But we are going to start off with England first and foremost, Tom. Um, and we're speaking the morning after the night before, the night after a 7-0 win at Old Trafford over North Macedonia. Um, it, that itself followed uh, a comfortable victory on Friday night away to Malta for England. Four wins from four, very much on the road to Euro 2024 20, in Germany. Uh, and I suppose both victories, the, the comfortable nature of both victories as well, it, it kind of everything went to plan. If, if England could have picked how these two games would have gone, no injuries, no, book, no suspensions, um and lots of goals and a couple of clean sheets. They they wouldn't have asked much more than this. No, I think it's as you say, it's um exactly what you hoped for. I think there's always a bit of
1: worry end of the season players showing a bit of fatigue. Maybe uh yeah we saw saw that kind of struggle last year with the with the hungry game, but um no, nothing of the sort this time. And I think maybe even better than anticipated. I think the Malta game was expected fairly straightforward, three points, but. 7-0 against, you know, a North Macedonia side that looked not too bad against Ukraine over the weekend. That's that's, you know, more than South Africa would hope for, I think.
0: I do have to say at this point as well, um, that for anyone that was listening to the episodes last week, I was uh, I was chastising my colleague Conor Bromley when he was suggesting that North Macedonia there's nothing much to them. It'll be a walkover for England, it'll be a walk in the park, and then I'm pointing to their results against Italy and Germany, and then she said they, you know, kind of performed well against Ukraine at the weekend, and then it all just seem to go disastrously wrong for them. Um, of course, the start of the show, though, was Bukayo Saka, his first England hat-trick, his first hat-trick in senior men's football as well. So obviously, a, a, a great night for him, a phenomenal night. And he's really starting to become a, a phenomenal player for Arsenal and and a phenomenal player for England too. We're watching the rise of, of someone who could be one of the very best players of his generation, aren't we here? Absolutely. I was... Um... You know, I was covering the game for, for Mirror Online
1: yesterday. I was writing about Saka and how, you know, every challenge has been put in front of him. As soon as you think, okay, he's he's got this fault, but can he do the next thing? He's, yeah, made it look easy. You know, there's the setback of Euro 2020, responded perfectly to that last, in 2021-22 season. Um, questions about whether he could continue that for, ne- for another year with Arsenal. He's done that. Questions about whether he could perform for England's like. You know, you looked at that and thought, Why why did we ever doubt him? You know? Um the hat trick, you know, it it feels weird to look at that as being the first through his career. He's he's done so much as just, you know, ticking a boxer at ease. Really. He was always gonna get off the mark with that hat trick, it just happened to be this game and it's just another sign of a player who's you know, he's, he's only twenty one. He was born in the week of England beating Germany five one away and oh, it, this, that's the scary thing about him the, there's so much more growth that we could see from him at, you know the rest of his career he's still yeah nowhere near even halfway in it
0: what I was going to say on that in terms of the levels that he's got still to go you know in football we're always looking for you know the the pretenders to the throne for uh, you know Messrs Ronaldo and Messi obviously they're coming to the end of their career and And, you know, everyone's always been talking about Kylian Mbappe since he burst onto the scene as a teenager with Monaco. Erling Haaland as well has that kind of, that same feeling that he's world-class. But in Bukai Saka, and look, you you know, we're not getting carried away here. Yes, it was, uh, you know, a hat-trick against North Macedonia, but that is, you know, it it isn't that game alone that's making you think that Saka can exist in this world-class quality, is it? You know, it's what he's done, as we said there for Arsenal, how he's bounced back to disappointments as well. Because that's always probably the even greater sign of a great player is is what's upstairs, their mentality. And, and Gareth Southgate spoke about it after the game last night, the maturity that he has for Bukayo Saka. Oh, sorry, that Bukayo Saka has in his locker as well. That for a 21 year old, you kind of forget that at times that he's so young because he shows this great maturity. So should we be putting him in this conversation perhaps to be, you know, not just England's best player of his generation, but potentially among peers across Europe and across the world. One of the best players that we're going to see for the next 10, 15 years. You mentioned you mentioned his mentality and one of the um, moments, it,
1: it wasn't even in a victory, but one of the moments last season that I thought, okay, uh, was was when he put away his penalty against City. I know they lost that game, but this is a guy who could easily have been scarred by, by the penalty against Italy. Um, easily have had the, the occasion kind of overcome him, and there's just absolutely no sign of any of that happening with him. Um, I think the question that people will be asking at this point, and I think it's fair to ask, is what's he doing in Champions League? That's that's where he hasn't been tested yet. But you know, as I was saying, this is the guy who has answered every question so far. There's nothing for us to think. Oh, he's going to something hit a wall when when he has this kind of competition. He's done it against the best teams in England. He can do it against the best teams in Europe, and I think yeah, I think maybe look at what Mbappe has done so far, look at what Harmon's done so far, and think, okay, Saka's not there yet, but there's you know he's got everything in his game to to suggest to us that there is a higher level in what he can do. So I'm I'm very intrigued to see what he does in Europe this season, above all else. Yeah.
0: Those inevitable Champions League matches against Barcelona and Bayern Munich, because of course Arsenal are always drawn against one of those when they're in the Champions League. Uh, seeing a Saka test himself in those fixtures will be uh, will be interesting to watch for sure. But as you say, I'm sure he's got every chance of, of stepping up to that level and, and performing to the highest of his ability. Um, someone else who there's been plenty of chat about over this international window, Tom, uh, is Trent Alexander-Arnold. Um, and there was talk going into this about how Gareth Southgate might try to replicate what Jurgen Klopp's been doing with him at Liverpool, kind of almost playing in that inverted midfield role. Of course, Gareth Southgate's gone the whole hog altogether and just plopped him in central midfield as well. But where this was tried, you know, 18 months, two years ago uh, in a match against Andorra, and it it's fair to say failed, I think, quite miserably. I know England won that game quite comfortably, but everyone who watched it would say that that Trent Alexander-Arnold did not have his best game in an England shirt. And again, that's not exactly a crowded field in terms of great performances from him. But what we've seen in these last two matches, and again, of course, comes with a caveat that one of them was against Malta and the other one was against a North Macedonia side that seemed levels off what they potentially could be able to achieve. But it was still, he's picking up minutes in midfield. He's learning this game at the international level as well and, and understanding the role and what comes with it. And actually, it seems that he's, learned a lot from being in there for Liverpool in, you know, the, the second half of the season. And he's taken that into playing there from the off for England. You know, his positioning was great. His ball playing ability, which we all know is phenomenal, the passes he was picking out and the vision that he was having, um, you know, full on Saka being one of the uh, for for his second goal, being a great beneficiary of that as well. We're seeing a different level here to to Trent Alexander Arnold. We're seeing a different performance for him for England. I suppose that's another kind of uh, aspect for Southgate now to consider going forward. Is Trent Alexander Arnold, if Jude Bellingham is fit and, and raring and ready to go, is he in competition with Alexander Arnold? Do you play him? How do you. It, it's a midfield conundrum now that, that seems to be quite a nice one as well. It seems that, you know, where Saka's kind of grown up and he's got this maturity, Trent's also grown into his midfield role a little bit more than perhaps when we tried it back in 2021.
1: Yeah, I think after the game, Southgate was, uh, was saying something along the lines of, you um, know, even a defensive element of, of what Trent was doing last night was, you know, it, it looked fairly, might have looked fairly straightforward, but you know, it's a bit more to that than than might have met the eye. Um, and you no, know, I agree with you that it hasn't necessarily worked before, but it is a case of, of, of Trent and Arnold appreciating international football and and what comes with it. Because, you know, you look back to that Andorra, and it's a time when he'd um, been kind of in and out of squads, let alone in and out of teams. Um he maybe didn't feel as part of the group as he as he might do now. Um I think that is a key factor in it with with Southgate's England as well. Players who have been knocking the door for a while get get minutes here and there and it takes a bit of time to settle as part of uh, part of the setup. I think even Jack Grealish, that probably applies for, applies to as well. Um as you say, caveat the these are not the kinds of opponents that England will be needing to beat to to go far into Euros. But you, you know, you can only perform against the opponent put in front of you. We've seen, we've seen games to Liverpool where he's where he's had a bit of it, and yeah, I think you asked about competition with Bellingham and and how that's going to pan out. This, this is the player who is not been first choice under Southgate in his "quote unquote" preferred position. I think having him to add to the numbers in midfield when that time when I know he scored last night, Calum Phillips hasn't been getting minutes. There are questions over depth in that position. I think it's you know it's a no-brainer to to have stuck him in, and I think he's certainly done enough in these two games to show that yeah that there could well be a future. While you know there's so so, so much strength at the right back, there could well be a, a future for him elsewhere in the pitch.
0: Yeah, you kind of almost do feel sorry for him that he's he's kind of he, the options at right back that England have means that he might have to look in other positions and one that he's picked is centre mid, where England don't exactly have a shortage of talents there either. One thing on Trent, though, as well, uh, and if uh, Gareth Southgate does happen to be listening to this episode, please, please, please do us all a favour and do not give him the number 10 shirt next time as well. I'd rather see him in the number seven shirt or something. I'm not sure seeing a, a lad who plays uh, at right back for his club in a in number 10 shirt is like I ever want to see again in England. They have a habit of doing that, though, with Liverpool players, don't they? I remember Steven Gerrard playing in the nine shirt years and years ago as well, and that was that was similarly grim. Um, Tom, uh, before I throw up at the thought of, of shirt numbers, which would be a, a strange vision, but there we are, England. And in terms of where they are in this qualification campaign, uh, as we said, four wins from four. Now, um, I think I've said plenty of times on this show that I think 15 is probably the maximum that you'd need to get there. Obviously, the fact that it's it's two from each group as well that will be uh, qualifying automatically, um, and that's without you know other teams potentially taking points off each other as well, and, and who knows what. Um, England are pretty much ninety five percent of the way there now, aren't they? Um, and I suppose that kind of allows Gareth Southgate a bit of perhaps freedom, especially with those games against uh, yeah, to come in the autumn, to start looking at things again potentially again like this experiment with with Trent in midfield. Are there other options? Areas we might see John Stones, for example. You know, he's another one that's kind of been pushed on into a midfield role. We could see him potentially in in the autumn window, um, yeah, playing there for England as well. It's a nice situation for Southgate to be going into uh, ahead of a major tournament, you know, but with 12 months to go, it, they have a foot and a half, if not both feet firmly uh, on the plane towards Germany.
1: As you say, 15s probably uh, will do it. I think the fact that it's not just 4th and 4, but it's, it's a win against each of the other four teams. Um, it's not just picking up points against the 4th and 5th place team in the group. Um, I think we can probably say England that are there at this spot already. Um you wouldn't expect them to fail to get three and points in the reverse against Malta and North Macedonia. Um and yeah, I think the fact that, you know, the upcoming games are not summer games they're during the season. Um I think, you know, from that point of view it's gonna be a chance to Southgate to look at I know it's not something necessarily likes to do, but to look at the form of players in the league starting this season. Uh, to be able to have the luxury to do something like he did with uh, with someone like Ivan Tony last season and, you know, give, give someone the call-up on these men, but also actually, if you, if you want to play them in competitive fixtures to see how they deal with that kind of situation. And, you know, there are, I'm sure fans of, of all 20 Premier League clubs will have an idea of one player in their team who they think has been overlooked. We'll see, you know, September, October time, what they're looking like in the league and, and Southgate knows... Certain players are already in a squad for 2024. You know, some like, you know, Harry Maguire, it will depend on how, the, how much they're playing in the league. And there will be space, there should be space to to move things around. And, you know, John Stones is is one of those examples. And I'm sure we'll see some players who are either uncapped or in the wilderness getting minutes um, in, the, in the next round of games as well. And it's just a case of, not change it too much, keep the kind of core of the team and seeing how other players operate within that system rather than, you know, throwing them into a setup that is actually going to be force in Germany.
0: Switching from England duty now to the transfer window. And as we said there, it is well and truly open. Um, we're going to start off with Chelsea on this part as well, uh, Tom. There, there is an incoming that we'll come on to in a second, Christopher and uh, confirmed just before we went live today to record. Um, but in terms of an outgoing, uh, reports and, and the mirror reporting on them as well that Pierre and Rep- Aubameyang, uh is hoping, holding that hope for a move to the MLS and a move to uh, America potentially. I can't see him moving to one of the, the Canadian sides yet, but you never know. Um, but a move to the MLS is what he wants. However, Chelsea have been having interest in him from Saudi Arabia, which is saying that he's not particularly keen on. And for Chelsea, who in this window have to sell as well as obviously they're still looking to to add players, as we said there and Kunku joining this morning, and we'll talk about him in a second. But that's not ideal, isn't it? That A high-earning player like Aubameyang, who clearly uh, you know, was only favoured by one of the three managers that they had last season, I doubt Murcio Pochettino is going to want to keep him either, um, but I could be wrong there. Um, the fact that he has his heart set on a destination where they're not getting interest, uh, and perhaps if they did get interest, the money that they might not be able to, to get from him might be a little bit less than Saudi Arabia, as we well know, is, is chucking money at, at signing big-name players at the minute. That's going to... Yeah, that's not going to sit well with the Chelsea board as they try to to kind of move these players on that they need to get out so that they can uh, uh, start complying with the uh, FFP rules that, that will come in in a few years.
1: I mean, the, the whole Van situation kind of points to complete lack of any sort of joint up thinking of Chelsea last summer, and kind of it's, it's the first part of last season, and it's just a case of you know they're they're coming to feel the effects of that now. I mean, it's less than a year since uh, that Arsenal preseason friendly where Thomas Tuchel was saying you know really worried about how ready Chelsea are for the new campaign. He gets his signings, he gets the reunion with the Bayern and gets what, one or two games to uh to look at that before before Tuchel gets sacked. And uh yeah, I mean, you'd love to sympathize with Chelsea for like having having a player they can't shift where there is interest in another league, but some I don't know, you might you might have to look at it and think they have to learn these kinds of lessons if they wanna sort out their business if they want to sort of strengthen the new campaign Um and you know Banian's not exactly been, been treated brilliantly by uh, by the club since signing Um Potter didn't like him Lampard didn't use him that much either Um he's you know he, he seems to be very vocal about Barcelona being his preferred destination and their financial situation is not not great for that so you know it, it's just Chelsea having to deal with the mess left for themselves at so this point. And if that means taking a hit in Aubameyang and and making money back elsewhere on Hulabawi or Ziyech or whoever else is is actually going to Saudi Arabia, then I think they've
0: just got to take the hit. Yeah, just a wider point before we come on to and just a wider point on Saudi Arabia and, and you know, their collective clubs' summer transfer windows and summer transfer plans. Um, of course, they've already got. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo playing there, Karim Benzema's moving across from Real Madrid as well. But you look at some of the other names that are linked there as well. And, you know, you said there for Chelsea, you know, Ziyech and, and Koulibaly. For, you know, we've seen Mares being linked. There were reports overnight uh, on Monday suggesting that uh, Min Song is being lined up as well by, by clubs out there. We've seen this before in football that, you know, we had it with the MLS when David Beckham first went out there. And then you had guys like Kakar and, and, and others as well that went out there on big wages. And then that kind of seemed to subside. We had it with China a few years back as well, uh, and especially it wasn't just, you know, players that were looking for one big final paycheck, which some of these that are going out to Saudi Arabia are, of course. But again, there's parallels in that there was a lot of players who were considered to be around the prime of their career. Obviously, Oscar as well, from, from Chelsea being one of those. With Saudi Arabia, how do you see this one panning out? Because again, you know, we are seeing players like Ruben Neves in, in the prime of their career going across and, and Neves would, you know, be a good signing for most clubs in the Premier League as well. But the money that, that's being offered to him, they can't compete with or probably wouldn't be wanting to compete with for, for Nevers. They'll probably save that for other players. But where do you see this Saudi Arabian investment in football uh, in, and in their clubs in particular at the moment? Where do you see this going? Is it like it's followed the similar cycles of the MLS and China in that we'll see it for a few years and it will subside? Or is this a, a problem for European football that will exist, you know, for for a decade or so now? There's always been the kind of um, debate around these, where
1: you know you see you see the likes of a, a Cristiano Ronaldo type or a Didier Drogba type going out to to one of these leagues, and he gets dismissed as a retirement league, and then you see someone like Oscar or Exterro going out there when they're in their mid twenties, and then you don't have the same, you can't make the same argument. It's you know, you want these leagues to strengthen by. Bring in players who can deliver for a number of years. And then when they do that, it's complaints about money. And um, I understand that from a point of view of, you know, there is massive kind of Eurocentrism and how we how we look at football. The Champions League is a big part of that. Um, I think the difference we have this summer, and I guess January with Ronaldo, but more so this summer, is that it looks more like a bottomless bit of money than... It necessarily would have been in China, and certainly, certainly, US. It, I think there was significantly less money involved. The uh, designated player system means fewer players necessarily can go out there and, and earn the kind of money that a Beckenbauer car was. Um, so, I think it has the capability to, uh, to have more longevity than than those other leagues. Um, the question is, uh, you know, is this just a, a kind of gear up to the? 2030 World Cup bid from Saudi Arabia and is that kind of hit that point and, and it and it kind of tails off or is it a longer term thing? Is it is it more like what Saudi Arabia are doing in golf terms and, you know, trying to sort of become a player for a much longer period of time? And I think that's something that's, you know, it's going to be possible to find out from this summer, even if, you know, even if we see the likes of Nevers and, you know, I, I don't see personally, I don't see someone going out there. Uh, but you know, even even someone like uh, Golo Conte, who in theory, injuries permitting, has has more time at the top, and you know could be playing Champions League football, I think you know there will be more attention on the league this year, and it's it's how how the players deal with that, how you know wh- whether audiences are put off by how it compares to European football. Um, I think if they can keep people in for a couple of years as that kind of audience, then that'd be the kind of tipping point in, you know, in whether it is actually a threat to Europe in, in the longer term.
0: <laughs> the, the golf analogy there just had me like a, going down like a weird rabbit hole where I was thinking that you never know one day we might end up with Saudi Arabia playing in UAE for competitions. I mean, at the minute we've got Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan as well, so it wouldn't be, you know, beyond the realms of possibility and it wouldn't be too far to, to suggest that one, but obviously where golf had the PGA Tour and Live Golf merger as well the other week. Um Moving on in the transfer window now, though, uh, and we're looking at Manchester United now, and it looks like David De Gea is, uh, has played his final game for Manchester United. Um, you know, the, the what is it? Probably about 10 days left on his current contract, isn't it? Wasn't included on their retained list last week. Uh, talks have stalled pretty much, so it looks like um David De Gea could be on his way out of Manchester United. There has been talks as well about him potentially going to Saudi Arabia, but again, that, that's one to keep an eye on. Manchester United, though, are in the market for a goalkeeper. Uh, and it looks like they're ironing up someone that Eric Ten Hag knows very well, uh, Andre Onana. Now, the, the, there's something to bring up about Onana, which again, the Mirror reported on um, the other day. And of course, it's well known and well documented how he ended up leaving uh, the, the the World Cup. Uh, was was Cameroon's number one uh, and then had a bit of a falling out with the manager over the style of the play and, and wanting to play out from the back and taking risks. Now that bit there, taking risks and playing out from the back, that's music to probably Eric Ten Hag's ears and Manchester United fans ears as well, because that's how they want to play. That's probably the reason why David De Gea's time has come to an end. But obviously the other side is having it out with your manager is not necessarily always a good look. And we saw how uh, Eric Ten Hag dealt with Cristiano Ronaldo last year when uh, when they had differences of opinion, shall we say. Because he knows O'Neill well, that, that might not be an issue here this time. But it's he looks like the man that, that Manchester United and Eric Ten Hag especially sees as being the future of and especially given how they want to play. Like I said, he's so so much a champion of that cause that he's he's willing to uh, sacrifice his place at the World Cup for it. I think you're right. I
1: think um, you know, there there might be a concern around um, you know, not see I drive as a manager, but when it's over something that is seen as an asset from the from the guy that's trying to bring you in, I don't think that's going to be as big a concern um on the on yeah I, th- I think it's it's been clear for for some time that you know if he's um it's not necessarily the case that he's he's not, no longer good enough for united but certainly no longer good enough to to be on united's books as a top earner or anything close to that um and yeah it's just you know he's, he's a goalkeeper that served them well he's uh he's been the right man for previous managers but I think it's it's no sort of it's, it's not a shame on him for, for him to not be right for for how ten i got to set up and I, I'm you know very interested in seeing what comes next for him whether the kind of goalkeeper David De Gea is, has a place in certain European leagues or whether you know now is the time for him to just uh, take the big money of Saudi, I mean, he's certainly someone that from shot-stopping ability alone has has plenty to offer. It's just whether there is a market for, for a goalkeeper like him with the demands you'd expect him to have after the money he was on at United
0: sticking with United because I forgot to bring up Nkunka and we'll loop back to him in a second all this talk about Saudi Arabia is, uh, uh boggled to be mine so but anyway we're going to stick with United now we'll come back to Nkunka in a second at Chelsea but sticking with United one player who is getting a new contract at least whereas David De Gea is not uh, looks like Marcus Rashid uh, is going to get one he's going to become highest paid player in the club's history uh, and what is it we reckon uh, again, the mirror reporting that we believe the the kind of total sum of the deal, so and the length and everything else, and you know all the other various clauses that exist within it, is going to come to about a hundred million pounds. Marcus Rashford, not bad money for a for a lad who came up through the ranks at the club. Is he worth the hundred million that Manchester United may have to, to outlay over the length for this contract?
1: That's a really tough one. Um, look at Rashford last season, and I think it's pretty fair to say United would not being in the Champions League were not for his contributions. I think that's that on its own is, you know, a huge financial benefit to United. It's, it's huge in terms of the progress the club looking to make under the manager. You know, you just you can't forget how far off the pace they were 12 months earlier. But it's it's one season off the back of a season that Rashford himself would admit was was a poor one. Um and like not just a one by his own standards, but you know 21, 22 was a poor season by anyone's standards. Um, yes, there. There's caveats. There's the fact that he was probably brought back too soon for injury. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, credit to him for, you know, having his uh, his return to form in such a big way and and being able to capitalize on that. I think, you know, the the local aspect of it as well is is huge for United. I think, it's, you know, immensely popular at the club. He's immensely popular. Kind of around Manchester and mm-hmm. to be able to have someone of that quality who is homegrown who has that attachment and who is you know was, was probably United's best player last season I think you're not really haggling over over you know fractions on a weekly wage I think there, there's absolutely a case for, for him earning that much especially you know in the against the backdrop of who else has been kind of Top earning and making huge money at United over, you know, over the time that Rashford and the club, I think there's, you know, 20, 2016 was it he made his debut. The last seven years have been plenty less deserving people of the kind of money that that United been throwing right around. So next season will be will be key, um, and whether you know United are able to build a team around them, which is what you expect to be doing with that kind of money. But I think mm-hmm. there, there is certainly a case for it, even if. There, there may be some questions from some quarters
0: as as, as promised finally not the fact that I forgot about it but we are looping back to Christopher and Kunku now and as we said there uh, the, the deal with Chelsea has been confirmed just before we uh, recorded this podcast and in terms of Chelsea's squad um you know, towards the end of his time at Leipzig was obviously playing kind of, you know, quite centrally. But, you know, was it a 10 or was it a deep line forward or was it an out-and-out striker? He kind of floats in between those kind of three roles. A modern forward, shall we say. But one thing I think I've noticed with Chelsea in, in and this isn't a problem since Todd Bird is coming. This is a problem for probably for a number of years now, I think, um, that they haven't had that out-and-out number nine that kind of not. I'm not saying the target man and the throwback to the days of Peter Crouch and Jan Collar or whatnot but it just seems that they need that presence up top to lead that line and they haven't had it I just wonder if Krista Nkunku is that right player to fill that role or are Chelsea, Chelsea adding to I mean I can't help but get past the fact that I think they're just adding another player that's similar to Kai Havertz. And I know, you know, there has been reports about Havertz being interested. Uh, sorry, Arsenal being interested in the move for Havertz. But you look at the other players in that squad and other players that have filled in there in that attacking role. And it just seems like Chelsea have a... By adding Nkunku, I just feel they're adding another similar player to what they've already got. I mean, you might completely disagree with me there, but I, I still think Chelsea need a focal point in attack and I don't think Nkinku will be that. I could be wrong when he gets thirty goals next season and this comes back to haunt me, but I'm I'm not convinced. Yeah, I guess um I guess
1: the thing is the last few years I guess the trend in the Premier League has been away from that kind of focal point. Um seen it with um I guess Liverpool the prime example where with the uh Salamane Firmino frontline um but then you look at last season, you look at City after all these years deciding actually we do want to play like that admittedly, you know, the best player in the world in that position, and then just go on to finally win in trouble. Um, yeah, Chelsea, I guess they've had those players, but not as someone that plays through. a really. I guess Olivier Giroud is, is the obvious example of someone who could have occupied that role, and they decided, you know, more than one manager decided this is a guy who we're going to use in the bench, we're going to use in Europe, we're not going to be giving 30 starts a season in a league. Um, and yeah, someone like Nkunku, as you say, there there are potential kind of questions about how they'll set up with with someone like him. And I guess what you've got to look at is Mauricio Pochettino did not sign him. Um I think sort of something, earlier, you know, Tuco was in charge when the protest started, Potter was in charge when the pre contract was signed, and now it's Pochettino's task to incorporate this guy into the team. And um, Pochettino... His most successful squads did have, you know, an orthodox nine in, in the form of Harry Kane that's first. But they did also have, I guess, I know I know he's kind of framed as a midfielder, but um, Deli Alli is someone who, in his best form, was essentially playing something not too far from what I'm going to conclude has been successful at. So I wouldn't be so quick to rule it out, but I think, yeah, it depends on who else Chelsea sell and buy in this window and and how they actually set up um under Pochina because you know the shake of the squad still raises questions, you know, do you end up playing Kunku as your nine because of no one else? And that could hinder kind of how how they how well they do this season. I'm sure they'll uh improve on the goal tally from last year because I mean it's gonna be difficult not to, but yeah, I I think we've got to wait until certainly end of preseason, start of regular season to see who else is in in the frame for those positions and, and how it looks like they're going to be setting up.
0: Tom, just finally, before we go this morning, uh, and I'm not sure whether or not we class this as the final managerial sacking of last season or the first uh, managerial dismissal of this season. Um, but Gary O'Neill kept Bournemouth up and how they reward him is by giving him, I think it was a 6am phone call, wasn't it? Or 6am text message Darren Lewis for the mirror was reporting. Um, they've moved quickly uh, to, to replace him, and I suppose, in those surprise sackings, that is always the case. The ones that you don't see coming that that they do have someone lined up. Uh, Anthony Iraola, who was uh, brilliant with Rayo Vallecano in La Liga last season. Uh, he's now coming across to the Premier League to be Bournemouth's new manager. All things considered though, is it a harsh decision on Gary O'Neill? I mean, he took over just after Scott Parker had suggested that the Bournemouth squad uh, wasn't good enough to survive in the Premier League. Um, and yet he went out and, and proved him completely wrong. Yeah, I suppose there's a couple of ways of
1: looking at it. Um yes, Bournemouth, you know, when when Park was sacked it looked like Bournemouth were nailed on for relegation and, and O'Neill deserves credit for keeping them up, but should recognise that you are them up with you know, just, just getting some breaks here and there. I think it was uh, it was a fairly weak bottom half of the Premier League last season. Um I think a season of those performances next year might not keep them up, might not be enough. And a lot of the time there will be that kind of loyalty and you know, owners chairman will allow a manager like Daniel to to strike through something to bring in the players he wants. And um, you know, and then when it doesn't work in September or October we decide, oh we've got to start again and it's too late. Um I think the comparisons that have been made by a lot of people are well, there's a couple of them there's Southampton, Ditch and Nigel Atkins for Mauricio Pochettino, which I think had a similar kind of backlash on some some people from the outside and um, Brighton replacing Chris Hughton with Grant Potter. So it's two cases of, you know, managers who have kept the team afloat, but owners who decide actually no, we should be should be aiming a bit higher than that. Um but Iroola is is a really interesting appointment to me. It's someone who led the team to promotion and then stabilised them. Um in part due to, you know, making making a home ground a fortress in the first season back. Um something that you think Bournemouth could be capable of with, you know their with their 11000 seat stadium with, you know, close into the pitch. And I think there a lot of thought has clearly gone into who they wanted to have, who they, who they wanted to have next zero has been linked with top jobs in in top European leagues. He's someone that has, you know, locked hawn to Barcelona, around Madrid. Uh, domestically and he's someone has shown like clear progress um with Ryo. And, you know, I think Bournemouth could have panicked when they sat Parker and, and gone with just a name. They could have um, you know, ended up getting rid of O'Neill in September, October, and then panicked in a similar way to how uh, how some might say Leeds did last season. I know Le- Leeds also said to have looked at Rayola as well. Um and yeah, I think doing it in the summer with a full preseason, being able to sign the players that Iraula wants rather than uh pure board signs or or O'Neal choices, I think they've given themselves the best shot they can. Yes, it's it's gonna feel harsh on O'Neal after he did what was asked of him, but in terms of what Bournemouth are aiming for longer term, you can understand where they're coming from with
0: uh with what they've done. Also find it interesting as well that, that they seem to have gone uh, cosmopolitan on the South Coast at least. You know, When when they first came into the Premier League it was Eddie Howe, even when he went back down to the Champions with Jason Tindall, Jonathan Woodgate, Scott Parker, Gary O'Neill and, and, and now have sort of gone uh, a bit of Spanish flair on the, uh, on the touchline down at the Vitality. Um, Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. As always, uh, of course you can keep up to date with all the latest from the transfer market across the Daily Mirror, Daily Star and Daily Express websites. But for now, it's goodbye.